The pitch for our technology is essentially pretty simple. It's save energy, save money, help the grid, and be sustainable. And do that without having to put a dime down up front because it's a zero down subscription that includes all the equipment, software, and services necessary to do the job that, that come together in a total package to focus on those commercial buildings to help make those buildings smart, to make them efficient, to make them sustainable, i.e. save money, save energy, help the grid and be sustainable. That's the pitch. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that explores how America's top innovators are supporting the transition to a sustainable economy. Today, I'm talking with the leadership of Gridpoint, Peter Corsell, the company's founder and chairman, and Mark Dazenbaker, the current CEO. Within the last few years, the energy industry has made great strides in the transition to cleaner, renewable power. But there's a problem. The intermittent nature of renewables. When grids must be resilient and power must be reliable, aligning energy supply and demand can be a challenge during the transition. Problem solvers like Peter and Mark are stepping up to solve the concern by optimizing electricity demand at the edge of the grid, which is where consumers utilize these resources to power our homes and businesses. Their innovations are designed to reduce our energy usage requirements, increase our resiliency to future supply shocks, and save us money on our utility bills. Gridpoint has emerged as a major player in this effort by focusing specifically on low-rise commercial buildings. The firm's complex energy intelligence system includes devices, software, and services that create more sustainable offices through methods such as data collection and automation. Peter and Mark are uniquely positioned to assess the progress of our transition, and I'm excited to learn about what they think we need to do in order to increase the speed and effectiveness of this process. Hey guys, thanks for joining today. Welcome Mark and Peter from Gridpoint. We'll start by talking a little bit about background and just getting a sense of who y'all are. I want to start with Peter. Why don't you give us a little bit about growing up, where you're from. Tell us about yourself. I'm from New York City, only child, born in Brooklyn, grew up on the uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan, and uh, I went to uh, Georgetown for college is what uh, brought me to the D.C. area. Awesome. And D.C.'s home for you now? Miami is home, but I also have a home in uh, Virginia, just uh, west of D.C. Um, Mark, what about you? Give us a little bit of your upbringing. Yeah, so I actually grew up in the uh, Washington, D.C. metro area. My father worked for the Smithsonian, and that's how I ended up growing up here. And I would actually say that growing up here has actually had a had an impact on my on my worldview. And I think ultimately my passion for sustainability. And I, I really think living here makes you see that despite sometimes what we see is the, the partisan politics that you know, people really do come here to make a difference. And I think that's always made me want to work on something bigger than myself. I've had this conversation with so many folks who I think have that misconception that um, about what DC is. And at its core, it's a bunch of young, idealistic folks who really want to make the world a better place and are doing their best every day for not that much money and not that much sleep, but they're, they're out there working for it. It's a good segue, Peter. I know and we've got we've had a lot of cool folks with really interesting backgrounds before they got into entrepreneurship or leadership of companies. You're probably our first alum of the Central Intelligence Agency, I suspect. Although I don't know, I would never know if, if that were not true, right? But um, it's my guess, and we won't ask for any stories from the field. But I am curious if you can kind of pinpoint any lessons 
from the agency that informed your perspective in the business world or how you look at business challenges and, and how that kind of experience may have helped shape your career? Yeah, you know, Connor, that's a very thoughtful question. I give you two answers to that. The first is the quality of the people that you work with, the quality of people that you surround yourself with, making sure that, that you're, you're dealing with people with, with integrity and humility and who are mission-oriented and see themselves as um, you know, serving a, a greater purpose or trying to accomplish a greater collective goal and are not fundamentally ego-based people. Uh, that, that'd be the first thing. The second thing really comes down to trying to reverse engineer outcomes, you know, try to paint a, a very detailed future picture of what you're trying to accomplish and give yourself the time and the space to try to you know, work backwards in detail from what you'd like to achieve. We've heard a lot over the last year from other entrepreneurs who talk about the importance of mission, of being mission-based on, on their teams. It's definitely a theme that I think is particularly acute when it comes to organizations that are focused on sustainability-like projects. And I mean, it's similar, Mark, to, as you said, you've, you've had that ingrained in you from your upbringing here. What was your path through college and into your early career? I grew up in the D.C. area. I lived in some other cities along the way, but went to school at James Madison University worked in consulting for a long time with Accenture, which gave me sort of a, a varied view of a lot of different businesses and a way to make impact at different companies on different projects in different ways. Some of that public service focus, some of that on the commercial side, but really just gave me a fantastic start to the career. Ended up doing business school at, uh, at UVA and, and then ultimately found my way to Gridpoint. And uh, the rest is history. Here we are. Peter and I connected uh, trying to you know, do well by doing good and, and delivering on the mission at Gridpoint. You had formative experiences in your early career. At what point did you identify, because you've done this a few times now, that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, that you were going to go start and build businesses? Because that's a, an interesting shift in, you know, work. First of all, I think in hindsight, I was an entrepreneur, you know, as before I knew what the word meant, you know, as a little kid. I, I, think, I think some people are just sort of born with, with that orientation. And you know, the CIA is or can be a very entrepreneurial organization, certainly in the context of, of government. And so I had entrepreneurial experiences at the agency for sure, both at Langley and then, and then overseas. You know, I think I very much, in terms of the founding story, I was working at the agency. I was thinking about, you know, what would be kind of the next big thing or the next big trend. And sustainability I mean, obviously, everybody should care about sustainability. And it was becoming clear to me in the early 2000s that sustainability and distributed energy would eventually become a big trend. I, I think I thought it would happen much more quickly than it has, but it's happening, which is good. Peter, why don't you give us the founding story? Give us the origin story. I basically did a lot of research on nights and weekends while I was living in Havana, Cuba. And you can do that. You can file what's called an outside activity report and kind of get permission to work on things that are unrelated, as long as you're transparent about what you're doing. And so I did a lot of research on distributed battery storage and the sort of emerging photovoltaic solar market. And I kind of zeroed in on the balance of system aspect of solar systems and had this idea that there should be an appliance in the home or the business that basically would be the balance of system in a box and would integrate energy storage, energy production, or power generation, energy storage, and, and load measurement and control in one energy appliance. 
And that was the founding idea for Gridpoint. And our initial product was called Gridpoint Connect. And then there was a version called Gridpoint Protect that was the same thing, but did not integrate solar. So it was uh, kind of a new product idea, like any other early stage invention. And at what point were you comfortable enough in the idea or in the planning process to say, okay, let's give this a go. Let's take the leap. Yeah, it was 2003. I'd been at the agency for four and a half years and had been talking to people about the opportunity, talking to a lot of folks in solar and policy folks in and around DC, around the, the emerging clean energy market, and got enough confidence that there was white space in the market and no one had been doing anything quite like that yet. And one of uh, my friend's fathers offered to give me a quarter million dollars to start the company. And I talked to a few other kind of classic friends and family, got a good response and decided in uh, the very end of 2003 to incorporate Gridpoint at that time and really launched the company in early 2004. with My best friend from high school, very, very classic story. Listening and thinking about at least the stereotype of what a successful intelligent agent might be, there's got to be an, a mixture in my perception of incredible aptitude to plan and like need and want to have certainty of outcome, but blended with this lack of fear or this risk-seeking psychology. And those two things sound a lot like being an entrepreneur to me too. I'm curious what you think of that. No, I think you're exactly right. I, th I think the traits that cause successful CIA officers to be successful are very similar uh, to those that, that drive successful entrepreneurs. And in fact, a number of folks have left the agency and done some great things in business with those same traits. I, I think you put your finger on, on something that makes a lot of sense. And, and Mark, through this period, you're still consulting, right? In the big, big consulting industry. If someone had told you amidst one of your 80-hour week engagements where you're off three or four days a week on a client site and that 10 years from now, you're going to be running an energy company like Gridpoint. What would you have said, no way? Or would you, you know, do you see that path now looking back? Or was that kind of a, a far off notion still? It's a great question. I, I would say that I've always been drawn to leadership and wanting to lead. Could I have told you that this is how the, the uh, path would have unfolded? No, I, I don't think anyone can, anyone can sort of predict the future perfectly. And and I was sort of listening to your, you know, back and forth with Peter, and I was sort of reminded of a, the Robert Frost poem about, you know, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I took a path that was less traveled, and that's made all the difference. Well, you don't know it's the right path, but one step leads to another, and you create opportunities, you open doors, and you take your shot. And I would just say for me, you know, coming in and having the opportunity, I hadn't been a CEO before, and Peter gave me that shot. And I think people can wait a lifetime for the opportunity to captain the ship, I really felt I knew what we needed to do in terms of a strategy for the company and how we would carry forward. But of course, I had to learn how to be you know, a CEO on the job. And I've learned a lot. And I'm sure I've made a million mistakes. And hopefully, I've gotten the big things right. And I like to think I've, I've made the most of it and tried to help build something together in partnership with Peter. And, and we really are partners. We talk every single day, work extremely closely together. There's no daylight between us in terms of the vision that we want for the company and where we're going. We are 100% aligned, and it, it's really just a pleasure and an honor to work together. Mark, thanks for saying that. Connor, you see what I was saying about surrounding yourself with the best people who have integrity and yeah, humility. Yeah. There, there you go. Mark, thank you. I, I am curious. I mean, it's a fun question to think about now in retrospect, right? Like, Peter, what was your first impression of Mark? Do you remember that first interaction and like what stood out to you from that first interaction? 
I do. I do. I think Mark was 2009 or, or, or 2008. I think. Something like that. I'm really interested in what you're about to yeah, say. No, it was, <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was blown away. I mean, I Mark, Mark joined Gridpoint as a product manager when I was CEO. And Mark joined originally from Accenture as a product manager and was absolutely brilliant. And I remember when I, when I met him quite candidly thinking, you know, this guy's is a lot smarter and more dynamic than, uh, than the guys working for. Um, Cause Mark, we were both young, you know, we were both young. I mean, Mark, you probably were 29 at that time or 30, you know, I was in the role I was in because I had been the founder. Mark was joining a, a, a hot company and I was just incredibly impressed and it took a little time and, and Mark just kind of worked his way up and, you know, then became president, CEO, and has done a spectacular job. And, and Mark, for the record, you, you've made almost no mistakes, not a million. <laughs> You're very kind. You're very kind. I'm sure I've made a few, uh, but hopefully we've gotten the big things right. And Mark, I mean, your first impression or, or thinking back, do you remember that interaction with, with Peter? And because I think the next question I was going to ask is, what was that recruitment process like, that transition that got you to take that leap as well? It's a great question. It was a leap. I mean, let's let's go back to that time. It was still in the kind of post-financial crisis moment. My wife was probably nine months pregnant with our, our daughter, our second child. I think we both decided early on that, you know, the only life worth living is the one you're passionate about. So if there's a, a career path, if there's a mission, if there's something that you want to do, like we're going to support each other. And yeah, it was a risk. I had tremendous experience coming out of Accenture. I really just love the experience there. It taught me everything. But I was hungry for the opportunity and the shot, and I really wanted to focus on sustainability. And uh, it just turns out we had there was sort of like a, a mutual sort of maybe two degrees of separation and just ended up someone on the team, connected with them and did some networking and then uh, created opportunity. So I really wanted to solve this, be part of solving this sustainability problem, which has got a lot of aspects to it. I think Peter and I both really feel that this is sort of the challenge of our generation that we've got to solve, and there's a lot of things to do. Yeah. One more kind of just getting a sense of the of the, the partnership and the psychology behind this um, really visionary endeavor. Both of you, as you mentioned, Peter, were young uh, at this point, and I think you know the there's always the uh, threat in those scenarios that we walk in and, and have you know extreme imposter syndrome. Because you're the youngest guy in the room, or you're uh, surrounded by peers who are, you know, twice your age, or employees who are twice your age. And I'm curious if you recall how you dealt with that, how you dealt with managing either people, partnerships, clients, uh, vendors. Was that real for you in the boardroom, Mark? Was that real for you, kind of as you rose the ranks? How did you guys navigate that? Let's talk about the job of the of the CEO. The job is to is to care. The job is to have a vision. The job is to build a team, inspire them towards a common mission, to take accountability for the things that go wrong, for the issues, and, and celebrate the team when they're successful and practice the right styles of leadership that's necessary. That, that's the job. And you just kind of stay focused on the things that matter in doing that. I agree fully with what Mark just said. I'll reflect on the other angle of being a young person with, with a board you know, most of the board, everyone there is twice your age, investors, vendors, other folks, and especially when you're new to an industry. And I think just about everybody in their early to mid-20s is, is new to just about everything, right. right? So, you know, the way I approached it was to be humble and to be very transparent with folks and say, listen, I'm grateful to have this opportunity. Here's what it is I would like to accomplish. Here's what I think I know. Here's what I think I need to know to be successful. But 
you can help me fill in the blanks. What am I missing? What do you think I need to know? What do you think this enterprise needs to be successful? So I would always try to avoid the um, imposter syndrome by doing my best not to be an imposter and not to yeah. pretend like I knew more than I did or to act like just because I happened to be in a certain role earlier on in life that I was necessarily the best person to be in that role. I kind of recognized that I, I most certainly wasn't the best person to be in that role, but you know, I was going to learn on the job and, and embrace that. And that's how yeah. I drove my, my interactions with folks. Yeah. So let, let's get into the nitty gritty on Gridpoint itself. I want to start with just the elevator pitch today. What, how would you frame the product and services of Gridpoint today? Maybe Mark, yeah. if you want to take that one. Yeah, you got it. So let's imagine that you're a commercial business. You want to be responsive to customer trends, demanding sustainable practices. People want to buy from businesses that are being sustainable. Number two, you're, you're worried about rising costs and energy. You're worried about energy inflation, which is real and will continue to get more real by the year as we proceed down the energy transition. And depending on where you live, you, you keep hearing about grid stability challenges. So these are all worries you have. That's the situation. And so the pitch for our technology is essentially pretty simple. It's save energy, save money, help the grid, and be sustainable. And do that without having to put a dime down up front because it's a zero down subscription that includes all the equipment, software, and services necessary to, to do the job that, that come together in a total package to focus on those commercial buildings to help make those buildings smart, to make them efficient, to make them sustainable, i.e. save money, save energy, and help the grid and be sustainable. That's the pitch. And that's awesome. How would you characterize the majority of, of your customers, your clients, your businesses who are buying these products right now? So we're very focused on commercial buildings and we focus on the smaller end of the scale, so to speak. And I'll give you some fun facts. Depending on you know the study you look at, something like 90% of commercial buildings are below 50,000 square feet and 70% of them are below 10,000 square feet. And that's typically the part of the market that's unaddressed and it's a bit harder because you have to tie a lot of the things together Yeah, and there's not as big of an energy profile. And so we've really focused on that unaddressed part of the market and trying to do that with this sort of this package of equipment, software, and services wrapped in a subscription. Yeah. I'm curious how that weighed into your calculations as well, right? Why commercial buildings of that size beyond the economic case, which is very clear from your perspective, was there also kind of a, a rationale that from an impact perspective, this actually was the best place to go to make an impact? Yeah, I think I think it was an unaddressed part of the market it was a was a major reason we wanted to focus on the smaller side of the equation. You know, there was sort of a desire that hey, look, if we're going to move the needle on you know getting to net zero, and we're going to move the needle in the energy transition. You've got to tackle the demand side of the equation, and if we're just focused on the large yeah. buildings, we can't do this by just focusing on the Empire State Building. We've got to get to the majority of buildings, and that's where we've really focused. You know, Connor, I would I would add to that. 40% of annual CO2 emissions come from buildings. And the kind of buildings that Gridpoint addresses are 90% of commercial buildings are these small and medium-sized buildings. The larger skyscrapers, Mark mentioned yeah. the Empire State Building, are unique, large, one-off buildings. But obviously, all around the world, we have these small box, mid-box retail buildings. And that's just a huge part of the equation. 
in terms of carbon emissions. And, you know, just to do the, the chairman thing and, and go up to 30,000 feet and give you some context, you think about the 20th century grid, the points of greatest intelligence have been at the very center of the system. Right? A nuclear power plant is the most sophisticated and intelligent asset on the power grid. And as you step down from generation to transmission to distribution and finally hook up to a house or hook up to a business, sure. the system gets dumber and dumber. And you get right. to that meter on the side of your house. I mean, even a smart meter, a so-called smart meter is not very smart at all. So what you really have is this sort of all-you-can-eat buffet of electrons where users, generally in residential or commercial buildings, are off-taking electricity from the system. As we've started to focus on efficiency and optimization and carbon emissions, where GridPoint's mission came in was, was let's come at the edge of the grid, get behind the meter, and basically create an operating system for smart and sustainable buildings that could help optimize the way those buildings use energy by driving energy efficiency upgrades through data and AI, by actively measuring and controlling load, so making sure you can do the same or more with less power in the building, and then by integrating distributed generation or leveraging energy storage. So really what we're seeing is the transformation at the edge of the grid, and these buildings are becoming smart and sustainable as it relates to their energy use. Mark, you and I talked about this previously. We throw around the term the grid, and I think folks think they know what that is, but I think that maybe that's a presumption um, that we ought to dispel. So, Mark, can you lay that out for people? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's worth kind of starting with and defining, you know, what's the problem we're trying to solve here? And in my view, you know, really it's a, a big supply and demand problem. And we need and desire to decarbonize and we need and desire to get to net zero. But to get there, we have to change the nature of the supply of that energy, as Peter was describing. But as we change the nature of the supply of energy, meaning what utilities, what fuel mix the utilities use in order to generate electrons that are powering this call, very call right now, right. that changes the power curve because we're changing from more sort of steady eddy fuel sources to variable sources, wind and solar, that creates an intermittency problem. And that's going to um, create a pretty significant supply and demand imbalance. And oh, by the way, we're electrifying a lot of things all at the same time, yeah. you know, in particular, the vehicle fleet, among other things. And that adds a bunch of demand. So you're adding a lot of demand, you're growing the population, you are changing the nature of the supply, and you run into this supply and demand problem, this supply and demand imbalance. So if I can kind of just continue the thread towards our mission, the mission of the company is to accelerate the energy transition and do that with technology. Yeah. And our vision for doing that is to build this network of commercial buildings that deliver efficiency at the edge of the grid, delivers capacity and demand changes at the edge of the grid, but are also deeply integrated with that grid at the same time. It's a, it's a hardware-enabled subscription platform for commercial buildings, sort of an OS, if you will. We call that grid point intelligence, but it's not just about being in a building. It's not just about the assets of today. It's about the assets of tomorrow, which we see trending towards energy storage and EV chargers that are going to be in those commercial buildings over time, but also deeply integrating that with the grid. And you know what you do is you sort of wake up. We're playing a volume game with lots of commercial buildings, and you wake up and you say, well, gosh, we've got hundreds of thousands of buildings that are sort of deeply integrated with the grid. 
they're efficient, they're smart, you're moving the needle on efficiency, but also moving the needle on balancing out that supply and demand equation, which is really, really important. Because if we don't do this smart, and it's going to happen over, it's going to play out over an extended period of time. If we don't do this in a smart way, people are going to start making calls to pump the brakes on the energy transition. And we don't want that. We see our role in concert with a lot of other things that need to happen to make the energy transition, you know, doing our part to tackle commercial buildings and drive efficiency, sustainability, and also to close that supply and demand imbalance. I might add one more thing that I think it probably helps solve for, which is resilience like right here and now. And I'm curious, in the last couple of years, last two years, we've seen a couple examples of grid failure in local markets. And I'm wondering if you could give us an example of how kind of unoptimized demand might actually help mitigate some of those concerns. I think everyone has seen, and I think, I think really the world has really caught up to this story, that we've got to be really smart about this energy transition. Because if we're not, we're going to see price spikes and scarcity and scarcity of supply to meet demand, and that creates an imbalance. And we've seen a number of emergency situations in California, you know, even in the last calendar year. And so you know, there's this need for what sometimes we refer to as virtual capacity, which is essentially not using energy at a specific point. You know, sometimes it's appropriate to use this you know, overly simplistic airline analogy that if a plane is overbooked, you pay the passengers or you ask the passengers to move their demand yeah. and you incent them to move their demand to a later time. And essentially, that's what, you know, that's what we're talking about is trying to take the edge off the supply and demand imbalance by encouraging and incenting businesses, in our case, to allow certain assets and certain control to happen or incent them to make decisions about changing their energy profile at certain points in time and certain locations where that, that congestion happens and prevent and you know try to eliminate those imbalances that create outages that make headlines. And we're talking about people's lives. Yeah. There's been a lot of public sector movement in the last couple of years to invest in or incentivize some of these changes, certainly the household level with incentives and some infrastructure money to kind of make big picture changes. I'm curious how you guys have seen the public sector as a potential partner and or what could they be doing to step up and further support this kind of transition and this kind of work? Yeah, so I, I would say that, um, and this is one of the sort of maybe the, the misconceptions that this is, this is not something that's gonna happen in a hot minute. And yeah. while urgent action is needed, this is not something that's going to be solved overnight. Uh, and it's going to take quite a bit of collaboration. And I think we're, I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing that happen. Um, but we're going to have to coordinate politics, policy, infrastructure, technology, state, local, and federal to really drive and you know, alter the economy in a way that can achieve the sustainability goals while not upsetting the apple cart of the, of the economy. Yeah. You know, Connor, I would add, I think the Inflation Reduction Act and actions taken by the current administration and the current Congress have been very helpful. You've got some amazing folks at the Department of Energy, people like Jigger Shaw and David Crane, Secretary Granholm, who understand these issues uh, extremely well. I think if we had a bipartisan approach to envisioning what the grid ought to look like in 2050, let's say, and reverse engineered a bit from there, it would be a big help. We're seeing the evolution, the technology-driven evolution of, of the grid. Historically, most of the action was on the supply side, just you know, adding more supply where, what kind, and how. And I think the technology of the last 20 years has really 
highlighted opportunities on the demand side at the edge of the grid, you know, everything we've been talking about here today. And that's a tremendous opportunity to have a bi-directional, interactive, resilient, self-healing, responsive grid. Yeah. I mean, you really have centered sustainability at the core of the organization. It's in the mission statement quite strongly. And I'm curious how you see the entire broad industry of energy engaging around this mission. I know it's not always at the core of your organization, but it seems to be more and more important to more and more players. And I'm curious how you guys see the industry shaping around or engaging with this notion of sustainability. I think evolving the economic incentives for the industry is a critical part. And that's been happening to some extent. But at the end of the day, you want to take incentives that historically have been about selling that next marginal unit of fuel or selling that next electron and making it about more than that. We don't want to make the pie smaller in the sense that we want people to have less access to to do the things that we do with energy, but we want to make the pie smaller in the sense that we want it to be more efficient. We want people to be able to do the same or more with less energy, certainly on a per capita and per output unit basis. And we want to make the green slice of the pie bigger. And so we need economic incentives across the industry. And I'm not suggesting there aren't already some there and it's continuing, but we need to really try to align the economic incentives for industry players to match the long-term vision of what we want the system to be. Utilities are a really great example. Most regulated, vertically integrated power companies make money in what's called rate base. If they get the regulatory commission to approve a new investment, it's put in rate base and then they get a guaranteed regulated rate of return. Now, there, there are good reasons behind rate-based thinking. It's, it's, not a, it's not a bad structure, but it needs to be smartly managed because otherwise the incentive is to just build infrastructure even if it's inefficient. In fact, inefficient infrastructure may be more profitable than efficient infrastructure. So it's kind of evolving the economic incentives, I think, is a really key part because if you're running a utility, one of your key objectives is to make money for your shareholders. And you have to do that inside a regulated paradigm. So it is a complex multivariate equation that requires stakeholders to come together and align on a a vision of what the system can be and drive incentives accordingly. Because I think everybody gets that sustainability is important. I've yet to meet one energy executive in my life who doesn't care about sustainability and doesn't appreciate the direction the world needs to go in the energy industry. You know, as as a company, and Peter certainly as a business leader, you have a lot of relationships and good relationships with legacy energy companies, and that you guys are at the tip of the spear of kind of the sustainability um, within the broad energy movement. My point of view, somewhat controversial in some parts of the world probably, is that you know for this societal level change to happen, it's got to engage everybody, including like especially legacy energy providers. And like for a transition to a cleaner economy, that sector will be critically important. And you're doing it. You've, you've got relationships with investors who, who are legacy. Um, I'm hoping you could speak to why and how you can accomplish navigating that balance and doing so kind of with an eye towards your long-term mission statement. It's a big problem to solve. We've kind of said a few times in this, in this discussion, but that absolutely means that everyone needs to be involved in this transition, including those that produce energy substantially today. And I think there's a desire to make the transition, but I think there's also a desire to be realistic about the fact that it is a transition, right? Emphasis on the word transition. And it's something that has to be done 
to balance both the reliability of power and energy, make it affordable and also make it sustainable. And some people refer to that as the trilemma. How do you make sure that we can do this in a balanced way that balances affordability, sustainability, and reliability all at the same time. And that's that's the key part of the equation. And, you know, Connor, I was just going to say, it, I agree, it, it has to involve everybody. It starts with customers and stakeholders. You know, businesses care about what their customers think. Businesses themselves are populated often with executives who want to do their part. I think it's very important to avoid, you know, kind of polarizing didactic yeah. positions. Oil is bad. Solar is good. It's a system. The system is transforming. I think it's fair to call it a transition as well, but it's a transformation of a system. It is a benefit that it takes so long in a way and that this plays out over years and decades because you can kind of get well-meaning, intelligent people together. You can get them aligned on a, on a vision, 2050 just being an example. And it's okay, how do we make sure that we all work together to evolve the system for all stakeholders' benefit over time in a thoughtful way. That's what needs to happen. There's no other way to do it. And this sort of culture war approach, green versus brown energy, it's actually counterproductive and stupid. Yeah. We only have a few more minutes left, and I want to get kind of some big, some visionary questions out there, because I think you guys will have really great thoughts and answers. The first is, you know, the challenge is real, and it's big, Marcus, you just said. These are big, big, big challenges. And oftentimes, you know, what leads the, in the headlines is the doom and gloom part of these challenges, right? So when we see new IPCC numbers that say we're all in big trouble, that's that's disheartening for most many of us. And I'm curious how you guys think we can keep people from thinking that this is all too hard or we're too late when it comes to, you know, resolving and, and mitigating some of the, the changing climate issues. How do we defeat defeatism? Yeah, I, I think leadership. This is the opportunity of a generation to help solve this problem. And we need leaders in business and politics and, and in many other areas. And yeah, this is going to be hard. And there's not any one thing, any one person or any company that's going to do it all by itself. But, you know, we got to put one foot in front of the other, set goals for that net zero energy transition and do something. We all play a role. So I think that that would be my perspective. And and when I hear the pessimism creep in, I, I sometimes get reminded of a of a passage from Mother Teresa who said that I'm sure I'll get this a little bit wrong, but you know, the good you do today will often be forgotten and the you can give the best you have and it'll never be enough. But what should we do? We should do good anyway and give your best anyway. And no one person's gonna do this, but each of us yeah. can take action to move the needle, and that's what we should do. I love that. Peter, what are the big questions you're asking yourself right now when it comes to thinking about the next 10, 20, 30 years? That's a great question. I think in terms of the energy transition, I think that the electric vehicle revolution is upon us, right? And you're basically going to have tens of millions, hopefully hundreds of millions of batteries on wheels that are going to be all over the U.S., all over the world, all over China, all over Europe. And there's a huge, you mentioned resiliency before, right? There's a huge opportunity associated with that, bi-directional electric vehicle mm-hmm. charging. And the idea that now you're going to have these resources. Think about how many hours a day every vehicle or the average vehicle is not driving around. And there's a tremendous opportunity for consumers, building owners, vehicle owners to tap into that storage uh, to transform the grid. And uh, I think that is something that I think a lot about when thinking about the next 
10, 20, 30 years, that and the power of, of AI yeah. to optimize buildings for us. When you think about one of the big challenges in terms of human behavior around energy efficiency, all the way to our, our parents you know, yelling at us to turn off the light switch kind of thing. Well, AI is going to present an incredible opportunity to learn the Nest thermostat having been a, an early foundational example of this. So I think the confluence of AI and electric vehicles are going to be these megatrends that we can leverage, hopefully, to help accelerate the transformation of the grid at the edge. Those are kind of big things I, I ponder about when I think about where all this goes in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, maybe I'll just you know add my point of view on the what the future hold, which is quite similar to, to Peter's view. And as always, very aligned. I see, we see this future as this two-way networked, decarbonized relationship between the producers and consumers of energy, back to that supply and demand problem. We see a future where we make decisions about energy, not just for cost, but also for how clean or dirty that fuel mix is. And we see every building, both big and small, will increasingly have a mix of assets that can be controlled. Sometimes, you know, the inside baseball term is distributed energy resources, but that's another way to say the stuff in the building that can be controlled and consumes energy will be controlled and managed in a, in a networked way. And I think that's the perfect opportunity for centralized technology platforms to manage these assets, these buildings, and deeply integrate that with the grid. And that's what we're trying to achieve. And we're thrilled to have just the opportunity to, to do that every day. powerful way to end the conversation. A huge thanks to Peter and Mark for talking with me on the podcast. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Chandler Bramstead and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week.